What do you call it when a hillbilly comes back to life? Reincarnation. It is the Balance of Power Roundtable. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by our panel of former two-term Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and our conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant, Alicia Preston. So much to talk about. We did a little pre-pod. We always fall into the trap of doing the pod before the pod. We have eight things we want to get to. The first one is, Alicia, how's your daughter doing? She's got the pukies. We picked her up at the airport and multiple delayed flights because of weather. She got home. We got her home at like 1 a.m. And by 5 a.m., she's puking because, and I think you both can understand this, right? Finals are over. We've all worked campaigns. Elections on Tuesday. You celebrate or get depressed on Wednesday. And by Thursday, because your body has been going nonstop, you get sick. And yeah. thus the situation in our household. She's home for Christmas, lying on the couch with her dog. And puking into a bucket. It's just it's better than puking on the dog. With a 101 degree temp and we're like, oh, oh your God. Well, first of all, I just want to say that the pukey is, is a less popular set of awards than the Emmys. Second of all, <clears throat> that would make a terrible name for a rock band. And third of all, Paul, I, I think you and I are familiar with this as electionitis. This is collegeitis, mm -hmm. but electionitis, this used to hit you. Actually, it used to hit you at the end of every fundraising quarter where we give you a, a fundraising schedule that was like it should be outlawed by the Geneva Conventions. And you would literally collapse with exhaustion and you would get super sick. And it was like it was a little weird. You'd go into a fugue state. It was really bad. I know I was exhausted all the time. It's the best thing about leaving Congress is I'm not nearly as tired as I was all the time the staff would be on me you got to raise more money my wife would be on me you got to see me more the kids would be on me we never see you and and my friends by didn't matter anymore because they weren't talking to me because they knew that all i was doing was asking them for money and i would simply fall over i just that's fall over sick that's the worst part about Terrible. being a politician is that your friends stop talking to you, not because you're boring or because you're a, an over talker <laughs> like me, both of those things may be true, but because they know you're about to ask them for $2,000 and it's <laughs> like, oh my gosh, it's Paul. Don't pick up. <laughs> right. So I left more messages for good friends than for anybody because oh. they knew what was coming. I just wanted, since you asked about it, I want to 12 second side note, dogs are amazing. I don't know if you guys are dogs people or not, but our dog is over 15 years old. Hasn't seen his little person since August when she went away to college in Arizona. He never gets up in the middle of the night because he's like 112 in human years. And she comes to the front door last night and his tail wagged like I haven't seen him do since he was three years old. And Aww. it was just the cutest thing. I've got it on video you've ever seen in your life. And dogs are amazing. Look. I think animals fall into two categories, dangerous and delicious. Your dog sounds like neither, but maybe he's an exception to the rule. <laughs> All right. Speaking of, let's get to some serious topics. This is one we could not see coming, or could we? You're about to see what I did there. Donald Trump increasingly adopting Nazi language. A resurfaced interview from 1990 in Vanity Fair brings out that he kept Mein Kampf in his bedside table. Oh, yeah. That's totally normal, right? That's totally normal behavior. But in re it, what's brought back the last few days is Donald Trump, just a series of fascist language calling, what, what did he say? Uh, is immigrants are vermin who are poisoning the blood of the country. I can't even repeat these things without getting an explicit label from Spotify on this podcast. When you can't repeat the things that the former president is saying without getting labeled by social media, 
You know it's a problem. And now Republicans are doing the Trump scramble. Do you remember that during his presidency when reporters would go up to Republican senators and say, what do you think about this outrageous thing that Trump just said? And some clever communications person had instructed them to say, well, that's not what I would have said. As if you could just like hand wave it away. It's like, well, he's echoing Adolf Hitler. That's a real shame. What a corker. Tarnation. I can't stand it. Alicia, defend your boy. I want to be clear here because I, I'm such an opponent of book book burning. I have read an English translated version of Mein Kampf. I think it it's important to understand history. So I don't think the that should be eliminated. But everything has to be taken in context. And the context is he not only read Mein Kampf, he had it on his bedside and 30 years later, he's reiterating it as though it is a good thing. He's reiterating the concepts. That is the context to take this in. When he says poisoning the blood of America, look, I married into an immigrant family. I myself am partially Native American. It's poisoning the blood of America is hatred. And hatred that is being spewed by Donald Trump and his sycophants. That is what is poisoning the blood of America. Paul, you and I got the opportunity last week to sort of agree with Elise Stefanik, which was not on my bingo card for this year in her <laughs> takedown of the elite university presidents who refused to cop to the idea that calling for genocide was bad. Now we get the opportunity to share this delicious tidbit from Politico. When attempted to be reached for comment on the seeming hypocrisy of her, boy, you universities, so anti-Semitic, Boy, you're bad, ha. Huh? Let me fundraise off of this position. And her seeming silence on Donald Trump's parroting of Hitler language, she was unavailable. Paul, do you know why she was unavailable? Yeah, I do know why. I know exactly <laughs> why she was unavailable. She was in Mar-a-Lago eating Wiener Schnitzel with the Führer, with her Donald Trump, the candidate. I love Wiener yes. Schnitzel. By the way, oh, well, Wiener's actually delicious. I delicious. ate some in Germany. Oh, oh. chef's kiss. Oh, but um, first. Paul, you are correct. Or I should say Dr. Strangelove, you are correct. <laughs> she was unavailable for comment on this because she was posing for pictures at Mar-a-Lago <laughs> with a raised point of furor. Okay. Oh. Well, but I'm, anyway, I'm on fire today. What can I say? <laughs> right. um, while we're revisiting last week's show, let's do a victory lap for you, Alicia. Golf clap. You and I had a friendly square off. I called it a Monty Python. Let's have an argument session where you took the side of Nikki Haley is viable and the Republican nomination matters. And I was like, pshaw, let me throw polling numbers at you. Well, 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 my how the tables have turned. My tail is between my legs. The crow is delicious. Alicia, would you like to share with our audience the new polling results that seem to support your case? So the new polling results in New Hampshire in particular have Nikki Haley at near 30 percent, Donald Trump underwater. And what we need is independents in particular to come out, pull a Republican ballot and vote for Nikki Haley. And Donald Trump will lose if that happens, the New Hampshire primary, and that will rocket Haley out of New Hampshire into other states. What we are seeing is that Donald Trump is not as popular as the polls may indicate. And as I said on the show last week, I said in the column, if people would like to look at it, seacoastonline.com, is that polls are not statistical results of those being asked they are statistical results of those being who are answering 
And that is a very big difference in the pool of people. And we have to remember that. I believe Republicans are done with Donald Trump. I believe his constant hateful speech has worn on people. I believe that people are starting to recognize the chaos and horror of a Donald Trump second presidency is too much for us to bear. And I believe, and look, let me be clear about something. I'm team Nikki Haley, but I want to be clear. I'm team Nikki Haley because I said on this show a couple months ago, you asked me, I said, I'll go for whomever's in second place. And right. that's I where I'm at. I, true story. That. Hey, yep. I'd like to, well, that's first of all, I just for all, for our listeners, we've done a, a number of crossover shows with some other awesome podcasts recently. So we may have some relatively new listeners. I just want to underscore once again that Alicia is a Republican political consultant, people. Yes, everything you just heard, she now sounds like a former member of Trump's cabinet, all of whom are calling him horrible things and calling for him never to ever step foot in any government building again. Paul Ryan this week called Donald Trump an authoritarian narcissist. Couldn't have put it better myself. So the only that- difference between they and me, other than being rich and famous and stuff like that and successful, is that I've never been with Donald Trump ever. Yeah, well, that's true. Ever. That's true. This isn't a 180 for you. This is a full 360. I have um, to let me just yeah. say I'm very worried about Nikki Haley because as much as I applaud our annihilators of plum in picking Nikki Haley as the surging second-rate GOP candidate. Second she... place, Paul. Second <laughs> you got that backwards. No, I said... No, that was I, I, meant, I meant what I said. Uh, a surging second-rate GOP candidate. I'm worried because the polls with Joe Biden and Donald Trump are so close that if Nikki Haley actually gets somewhere, and let's, heaven forfend, say that she becomes the Republican nominee... My boy, my boy's in trouble because mm. I, I remember the playbook of an aging white guy against a younger, more vibrant woman. I played that out in 2010 in my U.S. Senate I campaign. You blocked that out, got, Paul. And got clobbered. No, I never block anything out. I have the memory <laughs> of a GOP elephant. And, and anyway, I played that out in 2010, and I'm afraid to see yes. it played out, played out again. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if in that image you have gotten trampled on or gored by a tusk, but it was not. <laughs> look, I was getting gored on the other tusk, man. Oh, so, like, God. it was not awesome. I will say I'm going to sprain a shoulder patting myself on the back here. I went with it in classical political fashion. I took credit for your analysis, Alicia. I put out a video on the Blue Amp channel yesterday. Basically, It's a good video. People should watch it. Yeah, basically with a clip of Alicia offering her analysis of why Nikki Haley's rise in New Hampshire matters. And I was like, see, smart people are saying, and and I implied that I'm one of them. So there you go. People can (laughs) go check out that video. I do think there was an interesting distinction that you just raised about polling that it's worth touching on because the big headline this morning in the New York Times is they did their very high quality New York Times Siena poll. And they point out that nationwide among registered voters, Trump is ahead of Biden by two points. Among likely voters, Biden is ahead of Trump by two points, small swings. But it does highlight a couple of things about polling that we talk about on this show a lot. One of them is what you just talked about, Alicia, that first of all, national polls really don't matter. We know that there's only 18% of Americans are going to actually have any voice in the upcoming election because those are the people 
who reside in the actual swing states. And so if you're seeing polls that are national polls, great. It's like Miss Cleo. It's for entertainment purposes only. Also, there's the effect that you were talking about of you have to wonder who's picking up the phone right now. And that's where this distinction between registered voters and likely voters really does matter. Now, the New York Times is applying a very early version of a likely voter model here. We're not quite a year out, but we are very far out for them to be making guesses about who likely voters are. But already you do see that distinction. So this is just more reason for Democrats not to get too panicky about the continued stream of polls we see with Biden trailing Trump in the swing states by as much as five points. A lot depends. You really have to read the small print. A lot depends on are these registered voters? Are they likely voters? I'm not saying that things aren't close. It's not real. Barack Obama behind the scenes is, is telling people he's worried. He knows it's going to be a close election. I We all get it, but that is a critical distinction. So we shouldn't flip out too much over polls, but good call, Alicia. I have done a full 180 myself, and I, I do think that Nikki Haley's rise in New Hampshire is potentially significant. Look, when it comes to polling, registered polls, uh, polling registered voters is completely irrelevant. It, it is a foolish, cheap way to conduct a poll is all it is. And so anyone who polls registered voters, I would say I just dismiss it and throw it away. Now, likely is dependent upon the metrics they use. What, what is the algorithm that they're using? Are they using what we call four out of fours, which is people four, who have voted in four out of the last four primaries or three out of the last four primaries? There are all these metrics and boring things in polling that matters as to what the pool they're polling is. So, you know, if you say likely voter to me, I'm going to look at your back end, your cross tabs, and see what likely voter means to you to see if it's viable. I think we're going to have a relatively high turnout in 2024, but I think we're going to have a relatively high turnout in 2024, not because of people supporting Joe Biden, but if Donald Trump is on the ticket, which is getting potentially not as likely as it was three weeks ago, if we see that we're going to have an anti-Trump vote, that will be what drives the vote out. And I think that's good for Biden, unfortunately. Well, not unfortunately, because if it's Trump versus Biden, I'd take Biden, but you know what I'm saying. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I think that's right. And I think that's a good segue into two topics that we wanted to touch on that do kind of relate to this question of turnout and who is a likely voter. The screening question is interesting, and it gets to a little bit of a dilemma for Democrats about how do you try to focus your efforts in 2024? It's kind of the classic problem of turning out your quote unquote base those people who are four out of fours, who are, are showing up. You're not worried about them. You're worried about your two out of fours. You're worried about the people who are likely with you, but may or may not show up. How do you mobilize them? Then the other thing you're worried about is persuasion. What about the people who are genuine swing voters? So two things came up in this regard in the last week. One of which, Alicia, I think you wanted to introduce is this question of Vice President Kamala Harris's, what is she calling her tour? Reproductive Freedom Tour. Which is rivaling the ERA's tour for supremacy at Ticketmaster. Yes. What, what do you guys make of this? Is this all base turnout mobilization or is this persuasion or is it a little bit of both? If I go in on the Reproductive Freedom Tour, 
I am not someone who is easily offended at all. As a matter of fact, get a work to offend me. I'm almost offended by the title, and here's why. It's not a show. To your point, the Eras Tour, it's not a promotion. It's not a concert. Whether you are pro-life or pro-choice, I've never met a woman that champions the concept of abortion. They may champion the right to have one. They don't champion the abortion itself. It is a serious thing. And I think it is offensive. I think it is foul. And I think it's going to fall flat in the face of what the intention is. But then again, I think Kamala Harris is one of the worst politicians we've had in my lifetime. So maybe it just falls in line. Well, I can't speak to your uh, emotional distress over the Reproductive Freedoms Tour because we, we've spoken before about your position on on abortion. And I understand that it's a deeply held belief for you. And I take your point that for women, it's a this is a very I mean, it's a very serious topic and very serious business, especially given what's happened with Dobbs and the chaos that's ensued. Take a look at what just happened in Texas with this poor woman who needed to leave and the court struck down her attempt to have an emergency medical procedure. And wherever we are about abortion, I don't think anybody would want that kind of chaos in their lives or for a woman, at least with Dobbs uh, before in the pre-Dobbs era, which now seems a long time ago, at least whatever your feelings about it, we had certainty about what people's rights were and what uh, would happen medically. We had we had much more certainty. The chaos that we're now in is awful. And it's a big political issue. I mean, as we know, it's not something Republicans are going to win on. In fact, Republicans are going to lose on. Democrats are going to win on issues around abortion. So to that extent, because it's a lively political issue, having the vice president, who is a woman, out there talking about the rights that have been destroyed by the Dobbs decision and the GOP, I think is important politically. What And I know, Alicia, in the past, titles have upset you. You you didn't like the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, not to be confused with the Northern Ireland military movement. But the title, Reproductive Freedom Tour, is probably not a great title, but what were they going to call it? The Abortion for All Tour? The Abortion for All political campaign? Um, as a comms former, as a former comms expert, how about if Kamala Harris, not that I agree with this belief, but let's say this she does how about the women's freedom tour you could call it a million things but mm -hmm. when you're talking about reproductive freedoms and you're talking about abortion it's crass like, no i hear where you're coming from in terms maybe it's the word tour that it may know. be yeah yeah it, yeah. it kind of strikes my ears a little wrong i will say though that i think you're going to agree with this i think what's the old line we campaign in poetry and govern in prose we don't we don't campaign in poetry anymore, okay? No. And I, there was a fascinating expose in the New York Times over the weekend, a deeply reported history inside what happened with behind the scenes with the Dobbs decision. And it turns out that there was all kinds of machinations, all kinds of shenanigans going on. Amy Coney Barrett didn't want to take the case. Brett Kavanaugh was kind of on board but still uh, there there was back and forth in his mind neil gorsuch signed off on the draft opinion in 10 minutes and really importantly with kavanaugh and john roberts 
there was still an attempt to try to strike a compromise that would have preserved the fundamentals of, of the Roe decision or the superseding Casey decision. And it really was the leaking of the opinion to Politico in the spring, about four or five weeks before the decision came out, <clears throat> that locked them in to that position. And that just brings up the fact that was the leaking of the decision a horrible political act, something that undermines the legitimacy of the court, a, a crass maneuver, probably by someone on the right, not someone on the left, like Republicans have alleged. Yes, absolutely. But this is how history turns. And I guess for my part, I agree with you, Alicia, that the use of the term tour does strike me as, as kind of crass. On the other hand, this is a really consequential issue, as Paul is laying out. And I don't think we should consider anything beneath us. If this is what it takes to get people mobilized, then Isn't this is not the problem takes. with the country right now. Isn't that the problem? You just nailed it. We shouldn't think of something beneath us. Shouldn't all of this be beneath us? Shouldn't Donald Trump's rhetoric, shouldn't making abortion a tour like your Taylor Swift beneath us? Isn't so much going on right now? 10 years ago, things that would be considered beneath us and we no longer consider that benchmark? Isn't that I, kind of the biggest problem in the country right now? Everywhere? Wait, maybe you just hit it. I think Biden should jettison Kamala Harris and pick Taylor Swift as his running mate. <laughs> the Biden-Swift ticket would really rock and roll across America. She would sort of lead him out by the elbow. And uh, he'd step aside and she'd sing a few songs and and they'd be done with it. it you're, you're not kidding. And with get, now that she's dating, what's his name with the Kansas right. City Chiefs? I understand. Very quick story. Very quick with, story. Right? Am I right about that? Very yeah, quick. I'll give yeah, you okay. a very quick political story. Years ago, Richard Sweat invited Danish legislators. No, no, his say name it. is Dick Sweat. His just name say is it. Dick Sweat. Okay, he prefers wait, wait, to be wait, wait. called Dick I, Sweat. I don't know why, stop, but he stop, does. Stop, Great stop, guy. Stop. Okay. Years ago, he invited Danish legislators to come and see the New Hampshire primary. And at the time, the Bushes were campaigning. Little Bush, Poppy Bush, Mama Bush. And they were at an event in the seacoast in a big tent. And there was a lobster bacon, clam bacon, all that. And and the Bushes got up on the stage. They did their thing. And Dick Sweat said to the legislators from Denmark, and I'll do a very bad accent, so forgive me in advance. <laughs> he said, what did you think? And they said, we don't understand American politics. First, Poppy Bush get up and he waved to the crowd. Mama Bush get up, he waved to the crowd. Baby Bush get up, he waved to the crowd. Then they sing a song and it's all over. They said, oh, where are the ideas? So I think Biden, Taylor Swift supersedes that in terms of American politics and brings us exactly where we need to be in 2024. What would Trump do? Who would he pick? as his musical running mate. Well, now we have a title for this episode. Remember the time Dick Sweat had a Danish in the bushes? All right, let me connect over to another topic that we wanted to, what? I told you I'm on fire today. What's wrong with me? Okay, I, is this, do I have to label this not safe for work now? Is that what's going on? You might want to put child. You might put an NC-17 warning. a clam bake of no less. Okay. so. Let's get on to 
let, let's get back on to a serious <laughs> Every topic Tuesday here. morning, my sensibilities are disrupted. <laughs> on a less fun issue, Democrats are having this kind of same dilemma, persuade the persuadable voters or mobilize the base on the biggest standoff going on in Congress right now, which is over, do we provide more aid to Ukraine and Israel? Republicans have somehow, for some reason that I don't fully follow, linked that to changes in border policy. And the Biden administration has said, we'll do that. We'll do that deal. But they're stuck on the specifics. And this has been kind of the behind the scenes maneuvering going on in Washington the last week or two is activists in the Democratic base are really mad at the White House about this because they don't want any stricter border policies. And they're saying, look, if you do this deal, then we're going to punish you in terms of base mobilization. We're going to punish you at the ballot box in 2024. But there's kind of the 1990s era triangulation theory, which is, hey, when you're getting into the general election, tack toward the middle. And there's no question that the mainstream of political opinion from the electorate is a lot closer to the Republican position. There's just reams and reams of polling on this. Paul, you have fought these battles inside the Democratic Party for decades now as an elected member of Congress. You had your own issues to deal with when it came to immigration, when we were having an immigration panic in the mid-2000s, and you had to deal with the politics of this. What do you think is the right course for the White House here? Should they make a deal that would be much more restrictive on immigration from just from a purely political standpoint? Should they do this? So, look, the the White House, I, I get the dilemma. I had my own issues. I, I have moved left since I was in Congress. I've moved far left since I was in Congress. But at the time I was in Congress, I had to deal with the far left. Uh, over issues of war and peace, and it wasn't fun. I, I could deal with the Republicans because I knew what I was dealing with, but when I was eviscerated by people in my own party from the far left, it was like, whoa, dudes, wait a second, where'd that come from? So so I, I, I feel Joe Biden's pain about this, but it, let's think about the end goal. One, uh, end goal, we need to get aid to Ukraine. Two, end goal, we need to get not only get aid to Israel, but make sure that we are having the leverage to act as a moderating influence on a crazy Netanyahu and his and what and the way that he's currently conducting operations. So that's one goal. And number two, Matt, you're right. The general electorate is more moderate on call it more in the center about what the issues at the southern border. And frankly, I think I don't think it's a political loser for George Bush to be more moderate and honor the need to tighten up the borders. Now, we may not like how that's done, and that may uh, cause great ire on the far left, but it's not going to cause great ire with the bulk of the electorate. It doesn't hurt him politically to do it. You have, and unfortunately, he can't choose the Republicans that he's dealing with. He's, it's the Republicans we've got right now. And I think that the emergency about getting the aid done is unfortunately pressing enough so that he's got to hold his nose and make a deal. Alicia, White House advisor. 
Like I've never been in Congress. I've never been like Paul has. I've never been part of this experience. I think two things separately. One, we have a massive problem at the southern border. And number two, we need to get funding to Ukraine. I do not like, and I just have never supported, we've discussed this on the show before, why does Congress always put 15 different things in one bill? It frustrates me. It annoys me. I don't care who's president, who's in Congress. I don't like when they conflate issues that are unrelated. But here we are. And if the White House is willing to move on the southern border in order to get Ukraine funding passed, then that's a good thing. But let's make it happen because by the end of this month, the funding for Ukraine runs out. Kirby's been out there, the spokesperson for the Department of State, Defense, like whatever. National he's, Security. Agent. National Security. He's great, by the way. He, I'm like a huge mm-hmm. fan of his. He's so smart and talented. But he's been very clear. Funding will run out for Ukraine. And this is how serious it is. Without our support, Russia will run over Ukraine. Now, some people in the Republican Party don't care and say it's not our business. I say they're a bunch of damn idiots if that's what they think. We need to support Ukraine if the president has to give on the southern border. While I think they're unrelated, I think it's an important thing to do. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I agree 100 percent with you, and I'm not suggesting I don't think anyone is suggesting that somehow migrants who are trying to make their way to this country should somehow their well-being should be sacrificed as part of this deal. And like Senator John Fetterman said over the weekend, having a stricter border policy and a stricter uh, asylum policy isn't necessarily consigning these people to more suffering. I would just point people to the new data point out uh, also in the last couple of days that the number of homeless people in the U.S. is up 12%. And in particular, 55% of the jump came among Hispanic people, in part a reflection of the surge of migrants to many big cities. We're not necessarily treating our fellow human beings well by having them come across the border in these incredibly perilous journeys to places like Texas and Arizona, where Greg Abbott is going to bus them to big cities where they're going to become part of the homeless population in the dead of winter. That's not necessarily a humane thing to do. And speaking of humane things to do, when you talk, Alicia, about Russia overrunning Ukraine without our urgent and immediate aid, what we're talking about is the kinds of war crimes that the progressive left is accusing Israel of committing in Gaza. 100%. And all of their concern all of their chanting of from the river to the sea all of their all of that they seem to not give two whatevers good analogy the suffering of the people of ukraine if this funding does not go through so again i'm not suggesting that there is a trade-off here i don't believe that there is necessarily i think senator fetterman is right and i don't believe that ignoring the peril of the people in ukraine is a humanitarian thing to do. I do blame the Republicans in in Congress for having this standoff, for for linking these two issues. I do think that this is a callous use of leverage to get something that they want. And finally, just to pivot to the politics of this, which is where we started, I have never bought the proposition that the way to win elections for Democrats is to quote unquote, energize the base with exciting, bold, progressive legislation and policy. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
there's new polling out showing that millennials think that President Biden's administration has not done enough for them on student loans. Did you notice his <laughs> massive cancellation, his attempt to cancel student loan debt, which most people and the Supreme Court said was, oh, you've gone too far there, Joe. Of course they didn't. They don't Let's care. be clear. The Supreme Court told him it was unconstitutional to do what he did. Right. And so he tried to get caught trying at least. And what you got was a lot of ingrates from the progressive base who aren't mobilizing saying, oh, thank they're you, They're not Joe. progressive. They're ignorant. There's a very big difference. And I don't think that you would, if you stand up and you don't do this deal, because, again, Republicans are sort of taking hostages on this Ukraine issue to get what they want on the border. If you give in to the progressive activist groups who are saying, oh, you can't do that or we'll punish you with the ballot box, give them what they want. Go ahead. Hold out on a deal. Do you think that means, well, okay, we'll remember that you did that and we will show up in droves for you in 2024. I don't see the connection. I don't see that happening. I am unaware of an example of that happening before in electoral history. I think 100% for, from a pure political standpoint, you do the deal and you try to diffuse an issue that is truly weighing you down in your prospect to try to save American democracy from Donald Trump in 2024. I've, I've had my rant. What you're right. The basic issue is democracy or dictatorship. And what happens with this deal doesn't really affect democracy or dictatorship. Right. We're talking about democracy or dictatorship, both in Ukraine and here. Correct. And that is the preeminent issue. And I don't even think it's a trade off for the well-being of migrants, which, by the way, we all value across party lines on this panel anyway. All right, let's- Can let's, I just oh, weigh yeah. in on the immigrant thing real quick? Because I think this is important for people to understand. And yes, I'm a Republican, but I am also very much a pro-immigration, although legal immigration, Republican. We talk about this homeless crisis and immigrants that are coming here, many are ending up homeless after services run out or their contacts run out. But I think this is what I want my fellow Republicans to understand. These immigrants, these migrants being homeless in the United States of America is a better life than what they're coming from. And that's what we need to realize when we discuss our immigration policy. Right. It's all that's the problem that I think most Democrats have with congressional Republicans, with political Republicans and their position on immigration. It's all punitive. It's all keep them out. It's all yep. Donald Trump's. They're poisoning the blood of America. It's all fascist, and they're missing the, the humanity of it. We're approaching Christmas. What would Jesus do? All right, let's move on. I don't Couple think of... a Jew's allowed to invoke Jesus. I'm going to be I, offended. I'm, totally I'm a big kidding fan about being offended. Before... I'm just turning the tables. <laughs> hey, listen, if for people who have actually read the New Testament, which I have, um, there's an awful lot to like. There's an awful lot to like. I say this as a Jewish okay. dude. Like, if you listen to what Jesus actually said, this stuff. is what bugs me. Now I'm on a total tangent, but, you know, I've long said, and I am a Christian, I am a practicing Christian, the evangelicals that worship Donald Trump, that hate gays, that hate people of another country who come from the, what did Trump say? The shithole countries, pardon my language, uh -huh. and not to swear. And they do it in the name of Jesus is one of the biggest pet peeves of my personal emotions. Because if you have practiced or read or learned anything in the New Testament, that is the exact opposite. And so you can hate. You can do whatever you want. You have every right to hate people. But my God, don't do it in the name of Jesus. Well, people could read the actual Bible 
Matthew mm. 25, 40, whatever you do unto the least of my brothers and sisters, you do for me. It would seem to me that the migrants coming to this country are among the least of our brothers and sisters. So yes. there you have it. Speaking of the least among us, Mark Meadows, there's a real <laughs> piece of work. Thanks. I'll be here all week, folks. Paul, former prosecutor, we lean on you for this all the time. There was a significant ruling three-judge panel led by a George W. Bush appointee who Trump had on his short list for the Supreme Court, slapped down Mark Meadows' attempt to remove his prosecution from state court to federal court, said he was trying to have it both ways. He was trying to say, I did everything under my official acts. And by the way, I was constantly saying, I'm not allowed to do all these things because it's unofficial. So that makes no sense. You, you think this is a pretty significant ruling? I do. I think it's I think it's important because we've got the same defense that Trump is trying to raise in his federal prosecution, which is anything I did on January 6th or around January 6th, I did as president of the United States, not as candidate Trump. Because if he did it as president of the United States, he argues I'm immune from any prosecution, as opposed to if I did it as candidate Trump, then I'm in trouble. So this well-respected panel of Republican-appointed judges ruled that Meadows is not entitled to remove his case, that the things he's accused of are not within, were not within his official duties as a member of the Trump administration. They were outside his official duties. They were a part of the candidate Trump's attempts, basically, to overturn our democracy. That uh, the judge who wrote this opinion, and forgive me, I forget his name, is very well respected in the in judicial circles. This is certainly going to be what is going to be an important decision for the Supreme Court when they get the Trump question. It's important for. Can I ask you about that? Yeah. Can, I, can, can we tie that in? Because we discussed last week the fact that Jack Smith had made a move, maybe this was two weeks ago, had made a move to try to get the Supreme Court to consider the whether Trump can be prosecuted to get that basically resolved so Correct. that the March 6th hearing the trial can go ahead. And the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this. Is there a tie in there, Paul, in, in your view? Is, is this ruling uh, from this very respected conservative jurist in the Mark Meadows case, does that potentially send a signal of legal thinking to the Supreme Court? It, I, I, absolutely. I think it, absolutely. Look, the federal judiciary and certainly the federal judiciary at the level of the Supreme Court and the courts of appeals all know, they all, they read the opinions. They know what's going on. So the reasoning that the judge applied will be important. I think it's a very, I think it's a strong signal. It would be odd, in my view, if the Supreme Court rejected the reasoning from the, that court of appeals and went the other way on Trump because Meadows was his chief of staff, people. And you don't get a lot closer than chief of staff to the president slash candidate than Meadows and Trump. They were they were click and clack. They were uh, Cheech and Chong. And so so that's really what we're dealing with here. I'd like to submit for the record, they were not Cheech and Chong. Okay. Or what are you smoking, man? I don't know. That's the hey, Mark, best, what are that's you the best image we've invoked on this show so far. <laughs> oh, that John, what phenomenal. are you smoking, dude?
All right, speaking of things that are trippy, let's get out of here on this one. We may have saved the best for last. I just, I got to read it. I did, I'm just going to read it straight. I love going to Politico <laughs> on this because it's a great uh, sentence here. So we all remember George Santos. Shortly after his gold medal for the Olympic decathlon, he was elected to Congress. And it turns out he was a con man and he did not win the gold medal in the decathlon or any of the other. He only got the bronze, I think, right? Yes. And now he's been expelled. So now there's a special election to fill the seat. And Democrats have their choice and Republicans have now made their choice. And their choice is, I will read the sentence here. I I apologize to the candidate if I mispronounce her name. Uh, My sincere apologies. Uh, Mazi Meliza Pilip, who is a pro-Israel black orthodox jew who served in the israeli defense forces and is also a registered democrat have at it people okay so she served in the in the nassau county long island legislature and has been elected as a republican even though she's registered as a democrat talk about a trifecta of weirdness wait she's a black golda Meir, who is a democrat elected as a Republican, running to replace a con man who was complete numbnuts. And it's she's very popular in Nassau County. There are there Nassau County is a place with a very high Jewish population. That's a it's a big issue. It's a big issue there. If I'm not mistaken, this is the seat that my friend Steve Israel the name you are not no, mistaken. The name is no former joke. show guest. Steve Israel, former guest on our show, now running a fabulous bookstore in Oyster Bay. Steve Israel had this seat. He brought it, me. The to, dude's name is literally Israel. Okay, it is literally Israel. <laughs> he he brought me to his district for, for fundraising because I was the first Jewish congressman from New Hampshire. I was the only Jewish congressman from New Hampshire. Uh, anyway, so so it it's a big deal. And her back in the IDF, it's all crazy, but. This notion that she's registered as a Democrat, about which apparently she didn't have much to say when asked about this, neither she nor the Nassau County Long Island GOP chair had any comment about her registration as a Democrat. But it's not that odd. She was running against Serpico, a former New York City detective who had been investigated for uh, various corruption in the process of detectiving. Apparently, she she beat him, which is not surprising. So, but he also was noted to have given huge amounts of money to the now Democratic candidate against the African-American gold of my year. So Nassau County has an identity problem, people. They, it, it's clearly, it's clear that they like the pro-Israel bent, but are they, are they real Republicans? Are they dino rhinos? What's, there must be some new category. I know about dino. I know about rhinos, but what's a di-rhino? Or is it a rhino? We can't figure out. We, I, my mind. Paul's I, having too I, much fun. I'm boggled. I think it's great. Alicia? I don't know. It's a district that elected George Santos, so I got nothing. <laughs> with a great respect for this is like Steve Israel and I were talking about the fact he grew up with one of my cousins. They were like childhood friends, like my people are from here. And I just look, I think it's it's sort of a mind-bending twist on modern identity politics. And it does point out, by the way, that Israel is a pluralistic society, unlike the caricature that the progressive left in America has assembled 
like 20% of the Knesset is, is Muslim. Like there are large numbers of Ethiopian Jews. About half of the country are descendants of people who came from, they're oppressed refugees essentially that came from Muslim countries, North Africa. Like it is a, it, it's a very interesting experience to be in Israel itself and to see what kind of like it, a, a conglomerate, multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious society it is. And here we are importing some of that into a further twist. And she's kind of a Republican. She's kind of a, it's, it's, I love this. I'm looking forward to watching this unfold. This will be great. All right. Programming note, we're approaching the end of the year. Our tradition on this show is to hand out the boppies, the Balance of Power Awards at the end of the year. I'm looking forward to, I, Paul, Alicia, I think we should record this. We, we frequently do this over coffee. I think we should record this in the evening. I think we should record this over adult beverages. And then maybe we, we can also hang out and, and hand out the pukies. We'll, so that is coming up Arena. in the next week or two. Yes. Uh, our best wishes to your daughter and uh, to you. your dog. And <laughs> we will see you guys for that amazing show next time. I have a very important question, Alicia, before you go. Yes. Would you like a New York Times recipe for baked Greek shrimp with tomatoes and feta? Oh my God, yes. Okay. Email it over. Okay. This Bye. is the kind of hard-hitting journalism we do on this show. <laughs>